Okay. We'll be in Philippians chapter 4 again today and again next week. I'm kind of excited about next week. It's one of these passages that I love. Um, I love to preach because they're ones that if I weren't preaching, I would just skip. It's, uh, you know, so-and-so says hi and goodbye. And, you know, it's the end of a conversation that um, we have in almost all of these letters. And we tend to, if we don't have a reason to take a closer look, we tend not to. So I'm excited about next week. I don't know what to tell you yet. I haven't really studied it, but we'll find something in it. Vinny, if there's one place the church should leave alone, it's a man's soul. I heard that quote this week in my living room as the females in my family were watching an old movie. From 1947, I learned, called Life with Father. Has anyone seen Life with Father? Starring Clifton Webb Webb and Irene Dunn. And Elizabeth Taylor is in it? Okay. I don't know. I didn't watch it. I just heard. I heard this quote while the movie was on, and I thought, what what an interesting thing to say. Um, if there's one place the church should leave alone, it's a man's soul. You see, in the movie, Father is not baptized, which concerns his wife, Vinny. And so that quote was in response to some kind of request from, from Vinny that he should go to church and that he should be baptized. And again, his reply, if there's one place the church should leave alone, it's a man's soul. A little over 70 years later, I think we could change the father's response to maybe fit our times a little better. And he might say this, if there's one place the church should leave alone, It's a man's wallet. You see, we don't mind talking about the soul, but our money and our resources are our business. Um, There's a few reasons for this. One is that we tend to compartmentalize our lives. So instead of our communion with God, our fellowship with Christ, the life we have in the Spirit influencing every area of our lives, we just make a new compartment to fit it in. And the other compartments, maybe it's our work or our entertainment or our, um, our finances, they're off limits. They have their own compartment. But for Paul, and I think really for all of those who have encountered and are following Jesus Christ, uh, not perfectly, of course, but everything in our lives, including our resources, uh, there's not simply one or many categories in our lives about different things that concern us, but it's all sort of subsumed under this idea of the gospel. So even when discussing material resources, as Paul does in this passage, his mindset is that of someone who's in Christ, someone whose life has been changed, uh, someone who has encountered the resurrected Jesus. 
And all of that means that for Paul, there's no part of his life that he can talk about. Even when he's talking about, we've talked about this before, even when he's talking about the mundane things like his travel plans, it's filled with this language in the Lord, in Christ, because of Christ. So let me read this passage for you. It's verses 10 through 20 in Philippians chapter 4. I have great joy in the Lord, because now at last you have again expressed your concern for me. Now I know you were concerned before, but had no opportunity to do anything. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content in any circumstance. I have experienced times of need and times of abundance. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of contentment. Whether I go satisfied or hungry, have plenty or nothing, I am able to do all things through the one who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you did well to share with me in my trouble. And as you Philippians know, at the beginning of my gospel ministry, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in this matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, on more than one occasion, you sent something for my need. I do not say this because I'm seeking a gift. Rather, I seek the credit that abounds to your account. For I have received everything, and I have plenty. I have all I need because I received from Epaphroditus what you sent, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, very pleasing to God. And my God will supply your every need according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. May glory be given to God our Father forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Um, Father, as I read uh, these words that uh, in your wisdom gave to us and because of your grace gave to us, uh, help me to rightly understand it. Help us all to be challenged and encouraged by the role that the gospel of your son, your good news, redeeming us and restoring us to right relationship with you, how that impacts how we view things. Please open our ears, open our eyes, most importantly, open our hearts to be willing to make changes and maybe to make difficult decisions because we love you and we trust you. Amen. So there's another reason I think that talking about money is kind of awkward in church. Um, so many do it in a horrible, horrible way. Um, many of you have heard something called the prosperity gospel. Um, we've talked about it a bit before. Uh, sometimes this stuff makes the news. And if I know, and I know if I see it on CNN or something like that, then it's it's out there. Uh, it must be pretty incredible for the news to cover what's going on in churches. So you have sometimes these ministers, these pastors, these so-called evangelists who who need things like upgrading their private jet. And uh, there was one in the news. I saw it on CNN last week. Um, this pastor of a enormous church in the South, I want to say it was like in Georgia, maybe, um, 
bought his wife a new Lamborghini SUV for her birthday. Of course, the gift comes out of rumors that he was, uh, uh, well, less than faithful to her. So um, he needed a large gift. These things make the news. And there are people who think that there's you know, nothing wrong with that. And I'm not really going to talk about that this morning. All I wanted to say is that the abuse of money in the church makes it a challenging topic for anyone to talk about. So what I want to do is look at this passage, and I hope what you'll see is that there's so much more to what Paul is saying here than money. Frankly, money is not a big deal to Paul, and we'll see that in this passage. So the first kind of paragraph of this passage, um, verses 10 through 14, talk primarily about Paul and his need. So I want to point out just a few details and make a few comments about what we see in those verses. Notice that Paul's initial response to the generosity of the Philippians, and we know they didn't give out of their wealth. They gave out of their poverty. Um, But Paul's initial response to this generosity is to rejoice. Okay, And we must be careful that we don't think this is some kind of just perfunctory, some sort of like knee-jerk response that we sometimes give to gifts of a thank you, or sometimes people use phrases like thank God, or if you're on Facebook, you get like a like or a love or you know something like that. This isn't, Paul's not just clicking on a little icon here when he says that he has cause for great joy. Um, we use phrases like that, like thank God, when something happens that benefits us in some way. But often there's little conscience, conscious, intentional directing of our gratitude towards God. It's just a phrase we use. Paul, however, is very aware of the direction of his joy and gratitude. Now, how do we know this? Well, it was always customary, as it is now, right, to thank the giver for their gift, um, giving and receiving and, social, and their role in social relationships in um, the ancient Near East uh, is a bit different than it is here. Um, but some of it is similar. You're expected when you receive a gift to thank the giver. But notice specifically that Paul's rejoicing is in the Lord. So this joy, it's stirred up by the gifts from these saints in Philippi. The joy is directed to Christ. And in the Lord means so much more than we often mean when we express thanks. In the Lord or in Christ is a favorite phrase of Paul. At the very least, it should call to mind the union we have with each other with other believers, with other followers of Jesus, both ones who are here and ones who are afar. I think just like in this church, you have a group of people who, at a superficial level, have very little in common. And I've talked about the what this church might have looked like um, a few months ago. This would have been a collection of maybe primarily primarily of slaves, but also of 
slave owners. Um, a few wealthy people, but mostly poor, mostly illiterate. People from diverse situations, circumstances, and diverse backgrounds. Again, little in common, but when Paul uses these phrases like in Christ or in the Lord, he's pointing us to something different. It's not just a directional thing. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a sphere, it's a realm in which believers in Jesus Christ exist where some of those social, some of those economic, some of those racial distinctions are obliterated. And they're really not obliterated anywhere else except in Christ. So Paul expresses his joy in the Lord. The second thing I want to look at is Paul's need. He doesn't express exactly what his needs were. We can assume that because he's a prisoner, his physical needs would have to be supplied by family or friends. Um, I worked in juvenile justice for quite a while, and some people... So usually some of the older people who'd been around a lot longer would throw around this phrase that sometimes all these kids want is three hots and a cot, okay? Because that's what prisoners get. And, you know, for some of those kids, that's a whole lot more than they were getting elsewhere. The ancient prison wasn't three hots and a cot. It was nothing unless your friends or family provided it. So we know that Paul had physical needs. He needed food. He needed clothing. Um, maybe he needed basic health care. If any of you have seen the movie Paul, Apostle of Christ, came out a year or two ago, um, I think it's portrayed pretty well, this image of uh, Paul. The only resource he has, really, is what Luke brings to him when he visits him. So um, if you haven't seen that movie, you should. But then this passage especially verses 11 and 12, raise the question, does Paul have a need or not? In verse 11, he seems to imply that there really wasn't a need at all. Yet we know from his circumstances uh, in this situation and in others that Paul had throughout his ministry that he did have real needs. Not a private jet or a Lamborghini for his wife, but things like food and clothing. We could get some insight here from the two different words translated need in these verses, or at least in my translation, they're both translated need. They're actually two quite different words. In verse 11, what Paul is saying is that um, he lacks nothing essential. The word need for there is, is use of essential material resources or just things that are essential to life. He's saying that he has really everything he needs. In verse 12, uh, he uses a different word for need that seems to refer more to a lifestyle or a condition of humility, of poverty, of being made low, rather than some kind of specific need. So it raises this question, what is he saying? Was there a need or was there not a need? And I think this is important to look at. We live in a culture, again, where some who claim to follow the way of Jesus, the way of the cross, they also claim that God wants us to be wealthy, to be abundantly prosperous. Um, 
Maybe you've seen these evangelists who boast about how much their suits cost, how large and valuable are the homes in which they live, and they ask us to give them money for all kinds of crazy things. Some of these ministers have churches with thousands, even tens of thousands of parishioners, and they have even more influence through TV, through radio, and now through the internet. Um, and it is, I mean, those are anomalies. These guys are outliers. Most of the church is not this way. And it's easy to look at that and call it wrong because it is, but ignore the fact that there's very something very similar that often goes on, at least in my mind. We have to be careful. While we might change the channel when we see these men and women teaching a gospel of prosperity, we must understand they didn't just invent that message. I think it's an exaggeration of something that probably lies in all of us. It's this expectation we have that if we are faithful, that God will bless us and that that blessing must look like we expect it to. That blessing must look like having the material things I need, having the material things I want, even having more than I want. That definition of blessing might mean even things like physical health. While not a possession, it's still something we seek. And I just want to caution us that we need not too narrowly define what it means to have God's blessing. You see, for Paul, having needs doesn't mean he lacks anything. And this is where Philippians 4.13 comes into play. Philippians 4.13 is every athlete's favorite verse. Okay? You've seen this. Uh, Tim Tebow made it famous on his eye black when he played, uh, well, for his illustrious college career and his quite brief NFL career. Um, he had Phil 413. And actually, I read an interview where someone asked him about it, and he actually seems to know what the verse means and doesn't mean, so that was encouraging. But athletes use this in the context of like, Lord, help me to hit a home run. Help me to run faster, hit further, hit harder. Help me to win. Um, I'm embarrassed to say that I am not immune to this. I'd been a Christian for maybe two months. Had little knowledge of the Bible, but I went to a Christian camp with my church. Um, just a few months after I was saved, and I'm not even sure I knew anything about the Bible, but I knew I needed to write Philippians 4.13 on my cleats and on my baseball glove because it was a very sports-oriented church camp. In fact, churches would bring in, you know, ringers, kids that hadn't darkened the doors of the churches for years, but they played on the high school baseball team or basketball team, and uh, it was pretty intense. 
and combine this. This is uh, Oklahoma in uh, let's uh, June, and it's a Southern Baptist church camp, so no shorts. So we're out there in 100-degree weather with sweatpants and that kind of thing. Um, and I don't know if Philippians 4.13 helped me or not in that context. But this is, again, one of these misunderstood, misused, misrepresented passages. So what does it mean? Well, one way to understand Philippians 4.13 is to clarify the translation in its context. And I'm just going to add, I think, just one word to it and kind of a parenthetical statement. Um, Paul says... In verse 12, let me set this up for you. I've experienced times of need and times of abundance. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of contentment, whether I go satisfied or hungry, having plenty or nothing. I am able to do all these things through the one who strengthens me. You see, Philippians 4.13 isn't some kind of blanket promise that anything we need to get done, that somehow Christ will strengthen us to do it. It's very specifically Paul's giving glory to Christ for his ability to endure both having plenty and being in want. You see, look closely. Paul doesn't see the strengthening work of Christ in changing his circumstances from lack to abundance. And I could add that, I could add to that, the strengthening work of Christ isn't in changing your circumstance from poverty to wealth, or even from wealth to superabundance, or even from sickness to health. The strengthening work of Christ is in a contentment that is independent of a checking account or how much food is in the fridge or what the doctor says about me. The strengthening work of Christ is contentment that is independent of all of those circumstances. And when I read through this passage this week, I couldn't help but think of a similar situation and a similar response of Paul that we read about in 2 Corinthians 12. It's the well-known passage about the thorn in the flesh, which was, most agree, some kind of physical ailment that Paul had. Paul says this, I think I'm starting in verse 7 if you're following along, in 2 Corinthians 12. Therefore, so that I would not become arrogant... A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to trouble me so that I would not become arrogant. I like that Paul calls it what it is. He's not rewrapping this thorn in the flesh in some sort of Christian terminology to make himself feel, feel better about it. That's not what he's doing. He calls it for what it is. It's a messenger of Satan to trouble me. But he also has a different perspective. He says, I asked the Lord three times about this, that it would depart from me. But he said to me, my grace is enough for you, 
for my power is made perfect in weakness. So then I will boast most gladly about my weakness, so that the power of Christ may reside in me. Therefore, I am content with troubles, with persecutions and difficulties for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. Now that message won't convince you to buy me a private jet. But I hope that message draws you to Jesus and helps to put your suffering in context. So that's Paul, and that's his need. Now I want to take a look primarily at the second paragraph there and look at the givers and the gift. I love the way Paul refers to their generosity to him. He says that they shared in his trouble. Some people are bothered that this passage, there's almost no direct, like, we just want him to say, hey, you saints in Philippi, thank you for your gift to me. He just doesn't say it. And some of that social convention, um, we have our own ways of, there are certain rules, unwritten rules you follow when someone gives you a gift and um, you reciprocate. And, And that's some of what's going on. But he describes their giving him a monetary gift as sharing in his trouble. So their generosity out of their poverty, remember, doesn't reveal their superior position, but rather their partnership in Paul's suffering. And so to kind of get that point across, I'm going to just share a little bit about my experience in giving. Um, There are some ways that my family gives that feels more of, I'm reaching down to help someone. Um, We have a, what's it called? What's the organization? Um, Compassion International. We adopted a little girl and we give monthly for her needs. And it, it's, it's, it's cool. Like we get letters, we write letters back and forth and someone translates for them. And sometimes like she draws these adorable little pictures and on special occasions, birthday and Christmas, we're able to give additional gifts and that kind of thing. But it feels a little disconnected because we've never met her, and I don't know her. And so it feels like, yeah, we're sort of these like wealthy Americans writing a check every month to help out these poor kids in Africa. Um, You know, that's how it feels sometimes, because there's just some disconnect there. Uh, Penny desperately wants to meet her someday, so maybe we will. Um, Or like Operation Christmas Child, if any of you ever participated in, you feel the shoebox, which requires almost nothing of us, right, to help kids in some other country. Um, It's it's as a someone in a superior position. I'm not saying this is wrong or that you shouldn't do it, but it just kind of has that feel to me. Someone from a superior position helping out someone who's in need. We also have, though, we have missionaries we support monthly who are friends people that we've shared meals with and have shared life with. Um, I guess all three are from college, 
So Scott Chatterson and his family, God called them to Ireland about a year ago, actually a couple of years ago, but because of lack of funding, they had to wait. They were delayed about a year, but they're there now doing discipleship ministry in Limerick. Um, Bethany Fegley, well, not anymore. She married, but um, a friend of ours from Bible college who she and her husband are doing ministry in Argentina. I always want to say Brazil, but I know that's wrong. I know they're not the same country. They're just both south. Um, and another good friend of ours from Bible College, Brad Kinney. Brad runs a really interesting ministry. He was the chaplain for the Colorado Rapids soccer team for several, several years and decided to uh, um, start a ministry to chaplains. So he, he is in leadership and in contact with, with soccer chaplains throughout, uh, throughout the United States, at least. Um, he also, part of his organization runs, um, I forget what he calls it, but they, they supply um, soccer equipment for missions trips. And uh, as people go to, you know, Haiti or Guatemala, the most recent one was Haiti that, that he talked about. When you know these people and you've shared meals with them and you've shared life with them, even if it's been years and years and years, our giving to them doesn't feel like, like, here, let me reach down and help you out. Like, I really feel like a partner in that. I really feel like, man, with all my heart, I'd love to be right there with you, but I can't right now. So let me support you in this other way. So like our friend Bethany, they just lost their car. Their, her husband, Ramon, was in a wreck. The car was totaled. He was okay. But now they have a need for a car, and you just feel that need. You know, you feel that need. And uh, that's, I think, the kind of relationship that Paul here has with the Philippians. They're not giving him a handout. He's not some needy minister um, continually begging for more support. They are partners. They are fellow workers. They are co-workers. They're fellow soldiers. He uses all these terms. And he says that their giving is sharing in his trouble. I like that. I like that. He also says their giving is an acceptable sacrifice. Now, I had a hunch about this, so I did. I looked it up, and, and it is correct. This is the very same word used in Romans 12.1. Let me read it for you. It might be familiar. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. So here it's... It's this uh, word pleasing in Romans that in Philippians, Paul says it's acceptable. Very same word, very same word. That makes it clear at the very least that this image Paul gives us in Romans 12.1, right? I mean, this is a crazy thing that Paul says in Romans 12.1, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, Right? I mean, the sacrifice thing, at least the Jews in the audience would have, yeah, I've got that down. I know what that looks like. But hang on. 
It's a living sacrifice. What does it mean for us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice like he tells us to do in Romans 12.1? Well, I think what we have going on here in Philippians 4 is a prime example of what that looks like. It's the giving up of our resources, not out of our abundance, not giving away things that we like but don't really need, but giving out of our poverty for the ministry of the gospel. Paul says it's an acceptable sacrifice. It's a pleasing aroma to God. The very same thing he says in Romans 12. So how do we have this approach? Again, this text is about so much more than money. Um, And I hate that it's been used that way. Um, It's about so much more. It's about our disposition, our attitude toward all of our life. How do we develop this contentment that Paul has? So I have this snappy little thing that I uh, <laughs> I was trying, you know, I the Baptist in me likes things to be alliterated. And so I spent some time in a thesaurus and couldn't do it. I couldn't get everything to start with the same letter, but it does rhyme. So are you ready for this? Be grateful, be distant, and you will know the secret of contentment. You like that? (laughs) Be grateful, be distant, and you will know the secret of contentment. Distant and contentment rhyme, sort of. Okay. So when I look at this passage, how does Paul do it? How can he say that despite having significant physical and financial needs, not only to keep himself alive in prison, but to keep his ministry going, How can he say that he really has no need at all? How can he say that he's content? And that's what I see in this passage. He's he's grateful. He's also distant. And that's why he can say that he's content. So what do I mean? The most obvious one is to be grateful. Um, For Paul, both his lack and his abundance, right? He's grateful for. Um, you know, I can't tell you. Uh, we often assume that our prosperity is a blessing. But I, I've always tried to be careful making that assumption. I can't tell you if your prosperity is a blessing or not. I will say this. If your prosperity, whether it's financial, whether it's physical, whatever it is, Whether it's a blessing or not, I don't know, but I can say this. If it moves you away from God and it moves you away from generosity, then it's not. And I would say the same thing about your poverty, whether it's poverty of finances, whether it's poverty of health. That if it moves you toward God and if it moves you toward generosity, then count it as a blessing. I also know this, James chapter 1 tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights in whom there's no shifting or turning because he's faithful. For Paul, it seems that one of the greatest gifts 
is his contentment. Not so much the money, but the contentment that he has even without it in any and every circumstance. So be grateful. The second thing I notice about Paul that I think informs his contentment is that he is, in a sense, distant. Now, distant from what? Notice that Paul expresses distance between him and his need and between him and the gift. Some have read this passage to mean that he's almost unthankful. It's like, thanks, but no thanks. Or when someone gives you something you really don't need and like kind of don't want, you're polite, yes, thank you very much, but we're going to re-gift this next chance we get, you know, that kind of thing. Um, some have been concerned that Paul doesn't express his gratitude to the Philippians in a way that's expected. But I don't think he's being aloof or ungrateful. I think what we see is he's not taking this personally. Certainly the gift alleviated some of his concerns, right? But rather than talking about how much it benefited him, he talks a whole lot about how it benefited them. He's very brief about what it did for him. He just says, now with Epaphroditus' gift on your behalf, I have more than I need. That's kind of all he says. But he says a lot about how their giving to him benefits them. Again, he says it's a fragrant aroma. It's an acceptable, pleasing sacrifice to God. He also says that it abounds in credit to their account. You see, there's this idea that if Paul is too thankful, it's sort of the polite way of asking for more. He doesn't want to do that. He knows the sacrifice that they've already made for him and how difficult it was for them to send that gift. So he points everything to Christ. If we read between the lines and think of some other times when Paul, at, at times he refused help from certain churches, I think we could say that Paul would have been just as joyful had the Philippians been unable to give. That's what I mean by Paul's distance. His confidence and his faithfulness are not dependent on resources that men can supply. His primary need is contentment, and this is supplied by the strengthening work of Christ. So one way I think about this distance is, um, and I think I've told you this story before, a professor of mine in college used to talk about this holding, holding things in an open palm to God, whether in, and in the context of our class, his daughter was going through this really difficult time where she was starting to get involved in uh, drugs at a very young age and with an older, uh, older boy who she was dating, and this was concerning to him, and we prayed for her almost daily there for a while. And sometimes when he would pray... When Dr. Sauer would pray, he would pray, Lord, I hold my daughter in an open palm to you. She is your daughter before she's my daughter. 
He did the same thing when his mother was ill and dying. That's the image I have here of these gifts, these physical material resources. That Paul sort of holds them, but he doesn't grasp them. So he's grateful. He knows that every gift comes from God. He knows that the faithfulness of the church to give him these gifts is from God. He knows that his contentment, whether he gets the gifts or not, is due to the strengthening work of Christ, and for all of that, he's grateful. But when he does actually receive these gifts, he keeps them at a distance. He knows what his real needs are, and he knows the one who's going to supply those needs. And I think that's how Paul is content. He has this attitude, this disposition of great joy, thanksgiving, to the Lord. And regarding these material resources, he's grateful for them, but he keeps them at a distance so that he doesn't get confused. So my charge to us this morning is to take this same approach, uh, not just in money, but especially the physical, the material things that can often be a source of great anxiety and great discouragement when they seem to not be going our way. That we need to be grateful. We need to be distant. If we want to be able to express like Paul did, I can do all these things. I can be content in lack and I can be content in plenty through Christ who strengthens me. Let's pray.